0: Good morning everybody, it's Jean Nathan, it's Crosstown Conversations, and it is our first show of 2016, and I have some very interesting guests this morning. Um, The one and only John Barry, who is the guy who wrote Rising Tide. Who knows more about what's going on with the Mississippi River than most scientists, and is uh, has been a fighter for um, uh, issues that have to do with our safety in this region from um, uh, and, and also um, really addressing the issue of restoration of our of our wetlands which is something that's on all of our minds, but it's on his mind on a different level. First of all, let me just determine, John, are you on the line?
1: I am, and thank you for that introduction, (laughs) and Happy New Year.
0: Happy New Year to you. Um, So, you know, as soon as um, we had that real streak of uh, storms in the Midwest, I'm such a sort of little weather bug myself that I'm thinking, hmm, It's not snowing up there. It's raining a whole lot. The river was already looking high even before all that for a reason I don't know, and maybe you do or don't. But I said, we're going to have some early high water. And um, I have a little house on the levee in in the Holy Cross neighborhood, and so I head down there on occasion and and look out um, on the river and said, wow. And yesterday I was at the port. Um, offices and looked out on the river and man did it look mean. I mean mean it was just turning and boiling and it's high and I know we have those levees out there and everybody you know relies on them just as we did rely on the on the levees for Hurricane uh, Katrina and they failed us. Um, I don't have any expectation that that there's any serious issues with our levees but I can't help but think of you and, and 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 all the things that you wrote about the 1927 flood, which was the big milestone monster flood that um, caused all kinds of havoc on on every level, environmental, social, political. So I, ca- I just wanted to check in with you. And I- I'm sure you've had your eye on the river, too, during this time of very early in the year. I mean, we usually see this kind of flooding maybe in April, May. This is January. Um, so... Yeah, there's no global it, it warming, is, right? It uh,
1: is the earliest that I know of that the river is going to hit flood stage down here. The, the, earliest the in, in is, our cur- is, is, as you probably know, is going to be open soon. Um, and that's just extraordinary. Uh, it's only been open seven times before, I think, and and never in January. Uh, you know, just to... Review briefly the 1927 flood, which was the most water ever in the river uh, that we that we know of since humans were taking making records. Uh, I mean that flooded roughly one percent of the entire population of the United States and killed people from Virginia to Oklahoma. In um, 1926 was a very strong El Nino year.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: So. 2015 was a record El Nino year and now we have a high water uh, you know this this flood I think will pass through the there's already been 30 deaths upriver um, I think on the lower part of the river and the lower river is defined as from when the Ohio and the Mississippi come together at uh, Garrow Illinois on the lower river I think why we obviously are going to have flood stages and i don't think there'll be a truly serious problem from this crest the the problem will come if we continue to get precipitation because the natural storage basin of the river which the river itself provides that's already full and the land is already saturated so water that falls from you know is going to run off it's not going to get absorbed by the soil so that could be a serious problem fortunately the long-term forecasts from the weather bureau are you know more likely than not that we will have a relatively dry spring i hope that's true if it's if it reversed if we have a wet spring we could have some very serious problems
0: and, and what about um, snowfall in the in the north? That's usually one of the key factors as well. I didn't know that it was a, a, an El Nino that um, sparked the twenty seven flood. That's very interesting. Um, but uh, I, normally, I think about the snow uh, in the right. north uh, melting, and that's why usually we get the flooding in the spring. So I was right. worried about the same thing. I say, okay, great, we get through this one. But exactly what you just said: what if the, it keeps raining or we get in the late spring if it starts snowing up north and and do we do we start getting another flooding cycle in the spring and what is what is the impact of high water like this on the levees even if the levees hold i imagine that a storm like this really kind of knocks the levees pretty hard no
1: well uh, you know i mean obviously they're built to withstand that. And the river levees are built to a much, much, much higher standard than the uh, hurricane levees were built to, or in fact, than the new hurricane levees are built to. Uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't problems. You know, you, the, the, a flood like this does put a stress on the levee. Uh, it's being inspected 24 hours a day right now. Uh, there are restrictions on construction within 1,500 feet of the levee. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it, it, it's being monitored. When this water goes down, uh, they may need to do, probably will need to do some maintenance someplace. Either there will be a slide or there are sand boils. Uh, sand boil is when the water seeps from the river through the levee and sort of erupts uh, almost like a little geyser uh, on, the, on the, the back side of the levee. Right. Uh, and, and they can be handled, uh, but they have to be handled, and that's one of the reasons you inspect them. In fact, uh, it's not just in rural areas. They're, historically, there have very often been, been uh, sand boils and uh, seepage right in the French Quarter. Uh, so, you know, I mean, it, it, it is normal. The levee districts know how to handle this. They've done it many times before. And the reality is, probably in terms of protection from the river, the safest part on the entire river is New Orleans because you have the spillway right above the city, and you also have two other floodways Morganza and what's called the West Atchafalaya floodway on the other side of the River, um, which would take more water out of the Mississippi
0: so you're saying Uh, there are actually three spillways in a sense I didn't I thought I didn't I didn't realize that
1: yeah they the Morgans has only been used twice in 1973 and then in 2011 but there's actually another spillway I mean that's on the east side of the Atchafalaya there's another spillway on the west side uh, which would accommodate uh, significantly more water and that's never been used so, uh, I mean, it, is that, uh, are they, know, this, uh, this area down here, assuming the levees are properly maintained, is in pretty good shape from river floods.
0: So I have to assume, uh, t- tell me when these spillways were actually built. So they, they weren't around in the 1927 flood. And, John, take us back for a minute. I mean, you wrote a whole book on it, so I know I'm not asking you to, to narrate your book, but give us just a, a brief a summary of, of the of the 27 flood. And what's so interesting about it, of course, and, and what you wrote about was not just the um, physical factors that were involved in, in the flooding, but all the political issues that uh, surrounded it and that compromised um, really our, our um, dealing with the people who were affected by it. Give me just a little bit of a sense of, of what happened back then. And and, um, so, again, from the beginning, there were no spillways?
1: No. The Corps of Engineers had what it called the levees-only policy, and it meant exactly what it sounds like, that they only used levees. There were no reservoirs, no spillways, no cutoffs, uh, nothing but the levees themselves uh, to hold the water in. And they failed, and they failed dramatically and drastically. Uh, so you had, uh, as I said earlier, people from Virginia to Oklahoma were killed, and most of the devastation was in Arkansas, Mississippi, and Louisiana, where you had a huge percentage of the population flooded out of their homes. So there there were, uh, I mean, it was, you know, the population of the country was only a third what it is now, uh, but you still had numbers approaching the displacement from, from Katrina, from the entire Gulf Coast, not just, not just from New Orleans. Uh, New Orleans did not flood in 27 because the levees upriver broke and practically the entire Chaffalaya Basin was underwater. Uh, politically, the impacts were pretty significant. Uh, Hoover was in charge of the rescue and rehabilitation of the people, and he actually did a great job, and he built on that reputation and got elected president. I don't think there's any doubt that if it weren't for the positive publicity he got from the flood, he he would have had no chance to be elected president. Hmm. Uh, On a deeper level, uh the treatment of african americans in that flood and hoover's involvement with that helped shift african american voters from the republican party to the democratic party oh that's so uh, interesting i didn't you know that. it spurred you know black migration out of the south to uh you know los angeles you know chicago and and elsewhere um it helped elect Huey Long uh, down here in New Orleans. The powers that be that ran the city uh, convinced the government to dynamite the levee in St. Bernard Parish uh, and create a spillway there uh, you know, to relieve the pressure on the city. Which was unnecessary because the levees upriver had broken, so the flood crest was never going to make it to New Orleans. Wait,
0: wait, hold on. That's something that uh, I had my chronology on that story wrong. I've been, uh, you know, we we built this art center down in Poydras and uh, at a location that is identified as Crevasse 22. uh, Talking about that that
1: was a natural. I know that was a natural right. 1922. Yeah, no, I'm aware. 1927, very close to that. They dynamited uh, the levee.
0: Right. I, I'm aware of that, but what I'm saying is that I thought that they dynamited the levee before um, the levee break upriver. You're saying they did, did that after no, the No, no,
1: it, it was actually they did dynamite the levee prior to the break, but just before a couple of days before, in fact, it may have been—I can't remember exactly. It may have been like 24 hours before the levees and broke the levee, the upriver. Levee... But they would that those levees broke way upriver, hundreds of miles upriver. Right. So it was going to take uh, quite a while for the uh, flood crest to get to New Orleans. Uh-huh. And the engineers who really understood the river. There's one particular engineer who had campaigned against the Corps of Engineers for years because he wanted to build a spillway uh, and he thought the levee's only policy was stupid, he actually opposed the dynamiting of the levee because he knew perfectly well the levees upriver could not possibly hold and as soon as the flood got to them they were going to break, which is exactly what happened. Uh, and it was what, totally what was unnecessary. His name? Uh, and then New Orleans stiffed roughly 10,000 people who lived in uh, St. Bernard and Plaquemine who lost everything. they promise compensation and just balked they didn't they didn't pay it
0: i I didn't know that either that's just extraordinary what what was that guy's name uh
1: that was james kemper one of my personal heroes he was an engineer who said something i always go around quoting when i give talks he said it's much easier to believe than to think even so, it's astounding how much more believing is done than thinking.
0: Yes, it's true. So, so John, here's another angle that I want to explore. So, I, 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 I've been, you know, astounded at what happened then, and to me, that has a, a, an implicit lesson, and the, and that implicit lesson is that we cannot assume. And of course, we learned this lesson all over again with Katrina. We cannot assume that people in public office are doing the right thing. We just can't. And, and of course, this is a theme of the whole election year that we're going through right now in a kind of nasty, ugly way in, in some ways and in other righteous ways. But nonetheless, we really can't, um, in fact, trust them. So that's what makes me worried going forward is that I, too, even though I'm much less anti-government than a lot of people, worry about the extent to which we can really trust and count on the people who run not just the levees, but government in general, mm-hmm. to uh, protect us in in the face of disasters. And the thing that strikes me about what's going on in Missouri and what could conceivably happen here at any time um, is the lack of real preparation for disaster and catastrophe. So I look at this Missouri situation, and I don't know enough about the location where the flooding occurred, but it sounds to me from just some of the um, broadcasts I've seen that um, people there have been getting flooded so they know they're in a flood prone area and yet here they are at risk 30 people dying um, we just don't seem to think ahead and plan ahead for possible catastrophes and of course Katrina was another example of that can you do that I mean is it possible I mean right now we're just saying okay the levees are going to hold cool great but there's, no, to my knowledge, there's no real energy being expended to explore what would happen if, in fact, there was a um, a, 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 a a crevasse, or or less than that, just a, a failure of the levee on, on a minor level, as you're saying, with some stress and and, uh, and uh, some sand boils or a slide. But those little sand well, boils and slides can I mean, there, there's big actually
1: things. since Katrina, an entire industry of preparedness uh, experts that, that has been spawned largely by Katrina, although it existed before that. Uh, you know, the question is how good's the planning, and second, it's one thing to have plans. It's another thing to execute them. Uh, and, you know, you raise a good question, and you really don't know until you have a problem. Uh, I will say that the the evacuation of New Orleans in Katrina was greatly aided by the fact that they had evacuated a couple of years earlier for another hurricane for George, which missed the city. And that evacuation was a disaster uh, with people stuck on the road going absolutely nowhere for hours.
0: I remember that.
1: Yeah, and people, the planners actually learned from that exercise. And I'm not saying people were driving 75 miles an hour out of the city in Katrina. as I'm sure many of your listeners were part of that. But the fact is, people did get out. They, you know, roughly a million people from the metropolitan area, did successfully evacuate, and I remember when I went to the Netherlands shortly after Katrina, and they, while we wanted to talk to the Dutch about their flood protection system, they wanted to talk to us about how we possibly how was it possible for us to evacuate roughly a million people in 36 hours because they had had a threat. On the Rhine River and tried to get a quarter of a million people out over a longer period of time and were unsuccessful. And uh, in
0: what way were they unsuccessful? People didn't want to go or they didn't have well, the planning and the apparatus. I just know yeah. that
1: they felt that they had not succeeded and they had a lot to learn from the failure. As it turned out, those levees on the Rhine held, and in the flood they were afraid of it didn't happen. But uh, again, our transportation planners at least did learn from the failed evacuation, and the lessons were applied, and the roads worked much better when we needed them in Katrina.
0: So, so, uh, so let's let's talk also about, if, uh, unless I interrupted a thought that you want to complete. Um, let's talk about the long-term um, uh, preparation. For dealing with rising water, so not only do we have this catastrophic kind of crisis rising of water as a result of uh, El Nino or too much snow or whatever the cause is, and the Mississippi is high and and, and dangerous, but there 's another kind that's uh, that 's more pernicious and, and slower moving um, and and ultimately even m- more uh, catastrophic in a in a broader sense, and that is of course the rising oceans resulting from Climate change, mm. wh- wh- whoever and whatever they want to attribute it to, it's happening. We know that. The icebergs are just melting away and the oceans are rising. So, you know, Tannen may have told you that he's working on this art project where he's showing people um, uh, graphically where 50 feet high is and 100 feet high is and, and what will basically mm. not be land anymore as these oceans rise. And so, there's this longer term issue of, of evacuation on a much more, um, uh, (laughs) earth shattering is a funny word to use, but level, um, where people are are literally going to have to seriously think about migrating altogether and have, of course, many people who left from Katrina, we know have not come back, um, especially people in very low lying areas. And there's all kinds of uh, reasons and theories and, and, um, you know uh, uh, people's perceptions of, of, of political agendas, but the reality is that most of the areas where people have not come back are low and dangerous. So, how how are you thinking about that? Um, how are you thinking about including right up to the to the border of New Orleans the possibility that um, a lot of our our areas in in the lower part of our state, really below the lake, um, are at huge risk in the next. A few decades.
1: Well, I mean, as you know, that's one of the reasons why I got involved in the lawsuit against uh, the oil industry to pay for coastal restoration, which they clearly had a part in causing. They weren't the sole cause, but they were a major cause. And the land loss continues because of sea level rise. I mean, land that has already been lost is not because of sea level rise primarily, but in the future, sea level rise will be a major factor in that. Uh, you know, we do have a chance, uh, but that's all it is, is a chance. Uh, the state's got a master plan. It's a supposedly a $50 billion plan. However, according to a two-lane study, it's $71 billion short. You might wonder how a $50 billion plan could be $71 billion short, it's because the $50 billion is not a real number. It's a number that politicians put on it. The real cost is going to be at least $100 billion. Uh, there need to be dramatic changes, and people are not going to be happy. Because they are going to learn that their towns, not just an individual home, but towns are not going to be salvageable. They will not, you simply can't sustain them in the face of sea level rise. Uh, You know, the politics of that unhappiness, you know, remains to be worked out. Uh, I think we may start to see it. And then in the very near future, the previous master plans were largely conceptual or worked on projects that had pretty strong consensus behind them. Uh, I know obviously fishermen and oystermen in particular have objected to diversions, uh, but I think those diversions are absolutely necessary. but as we go out into the future and people begin to realize, well, wait a second, there's nothing being done to protect where I live uh, in terms of restoration, then they're going to be very unhappy and they're going to try to get dollars sh- shifted to them. And I don't blame them, but the reality is, you know, nature, <laughs> you can't argue with it. Uh, nature is going to do what it's going to do, and we will not have the resources there's not enough sediment in the river to rebuild what needs to be rebuilt to protect everybody.
0: So, so John, uh, who is actually thinking on this level? Uh, uh, who's actually thinking about how do you literally migrate whole towns? And actually, it's kind of happening already, isn't it? To some extent, smaller towns on the coast of Louisiana that have already been basically flooded out by um, really as a result of, of coastal erosion, uh, partially well, as a result. Yeah, well, of
1: the U.S. Geological Survey is remapping the state and because of coastal land loss. And they, a uh, little over a year ago, it finished Plaquemine Parish. In Plaquemine alone, they took 31 place names off the map because they don't exist anymore. They're all underwater. water. Uh, As they move across the state, there will be hundreds of place names taken off the map. At this point, um, I don't know that there are really populated areas that have been totally submerged. There are areas that have been severely hit, like Delacroix, uh, which is relatively close to New Orleans, and at one point was a thriving town with you know, with several schools and so forth, and and now is basically nothing but a fishing camp uh, with, you know, perhaps a few dozen, maybe a hundred people living there, uh, when it once had several thousand. Uh, And, you know, you hope that people in the coastal office, well, I mean, you don't hope there are are people who are trying to address this, but the real... uh, flashlight or spotlight hasn't yet arrived to that process, Uh, and most people don't think about it. Most people hear the word master plan, and they think that it intends to restore the 2,000 square miles, almost 2,000 square miles, that have already been lost. In fact, there's virtually no attempt to restore that land, most of it, because It's impossible. We just don't have the resources. Even if you had a trillion dollars, you still need the sediment, and we don't have enough sediment to do that. Uh, It is – Louisiana is facing a very real problem, crisis, not a problem.
0: Let me turn for just a minute to the um, legal case on on the um, on the levies. Where, where, where does that stand? First of all, just restate for people for just a second exactly uh, the nature of the suit that was brought, and and then let's uh, and update me on it.
1: Well, as I said earlier, uh, everybody knows every scientific study, including those by the oil industry itself, uh, have concluded that. The oil industry is responsible for a significant part of the land loss. The studies don't all agree on what percent is attributable to the oil industry, uh, and it varies from one part of the state to the next. Uh, but I will say a study funded by the Midcontinent Oil and Gas Association, which is a trade association for Exxon, BP, Shell, and so forth, uh, their own study looked at the areas where land loss has been the hardest hit, which was not actually in our areas over Barrataria and Terrebonne in that area, and they concluded, quote, the overwhelming cause, unquote, of land loss in that particular area was oil and gas operations. That's the industry study. <laughs> uh, so because loss of the coast outside the levees, that land serves as a natural buffer and the loss of it increases the storm surge against the levees. So I was on the Southeast Louisiana Flood Protection Authority East, with the name for the levee board or pre- protecting the East Bank of the metro area. Uh, so because of the increased stress on the levees and our inability to defend, to protect people's lives and Property as that storm surge kept, you know, in the future would get be getting larger and larger. You know, I, I thought it was appropriate that we ask the industry uh, to help the flood authority protect people's lives, uh, and therefore we, you know, we filed the lawsuit uh, so that we'd be able to get them to do what.
0: They said you know, they were going to do. You
1: know, what their permits required them to do anyway. Right. Uh, the case was dismissed uh, by, the, as, you know, probably your listeners all know, there was a huge political fight over this. Uh, the state legislature in 2014 passed a law which attempted to kill the lawsuit. One state court threw that law out on. Three separate grounds found it unconstitutional, also found it didn't apply to the flood authority anyway. Uh, but separately in federal court, uh, in another action, then a uh, district court judge dismissed the case saying that the flood authority didn't have standing. I could go at length as why I think that was a dumb ruling. Uh, but in the meantime, it's on appeal to the Fifth Circuit, and we'll probably get a decision on – by the fifth circuit Court of appeals in the next couple of months
0: okay that's what i wanted to know so we're we're still waiting and and you're looking at uh... something within the next couple of months and john any uh... instincts about how it's going
1: well i can tell you that the attorneys are actually they're not just whistling past the graveyard they are sincerely optimistic um, but what may be at least is important uh... if not more important uh, uh, John Bell Edwards said publicly a couple weeks ago, or a week ago, that uh, he expected the industry to step up and contribute to coastal restoration in a serious way. Uh, he said he hoped that the negotiations would be voluntary, but he also said that, uh, negotiations with the threat of litigation At the end of it, uh, if the negotiations were not successful, would probably not be very good negotiating. So, you know, he's he the potential stick out there from the state uh, is he's waving it, and if he follows through on that, that is what we always hope for when we file the lawsuit. We didn't really ever expect the East Bank levy board for New Orleans to be the only entity in the state that would get any money from the oil industry to fix the coast. Uh, What we hoped would happen would be that the action the board took would precipitate a statewide deal. And I really believe if, if Jindal had cared, all he had to do was pick up the phone and take advantage of the leverage that that lawsuit gave, you know, call industry leaders, tell them, look, guys, it's time to get this resolved. Uh, but, of course, he didn't do it. He preferred to Run fight tooth the nail to kill the lawsuit.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, we're not even going to waste our time on, on, on that. Um, I, I must say I was a little concerned um, when I saw that uh, Bell Edwards was um, was willing was calling for more time for the oil companies to make the changes that they need to do technically at these wells to prevent blowouts. I forget the exact expression for the for the technology that that ca- ca- catches and stops a blowout that made me a little bit nervous and I know he 's a friend of the uh, the energy industry as coming from the part of the country the state that he does and and being a responsible Governor of the state of Louisiana, you can't be anti-energy. You just want to try to make them do the right thing. So, um, I'm hoping that you're. Well, he,
1: was, uh, he was also our biggest defender in the state legislature. Oh, okay. Uh, far oh, more great. than any member of the great. Orleans delegation, uh, really? which I was, frankly, pretty disappointed with. Oh. Uh, but, you know, John Bell was was extremely uh, vigorous in trying to. Protect the lawsuit.
0: Excellent. So glad to hear that. So, John, uh, that that actually further underscores my New Year's um, hopes for 2016. That with a, a fairly dramatic change in leadership at the state level, with him as governor and Darden and a Division of Administration, and even Billy, whose politics I don't necessarily line up with in every way, but he's such a fabulous advocate that I'm hoping he's going to be an important um, advocate for our region uh, on many levels as well. So um, here's to a better new year. And, and please, John, I really count on you. You and, and Jacques Morial are my two favorite sources in the city for things going on in general. You guys seem to know uh, really what's happening. Keep Jacques knows
1: a lot more than I do. He, <laughs> Jacques uh, knows more than God. I, I, I might know <laughs> something in a, one narrow area, but... Uh... <laughs>
0: But I'm going to count on you to keep me um, going and up to date on what's going on. I do have a one caller I want to take as while you're still in the air. That's on your subject before I turn to my next guest. So stand by one second. Let's hear what she has to say, uh, Miss Mary. Yes. Uh, good morning to both of you.
1: Uh, I had a question I wanted to ask about on the lower line. We know we're already in a lower area. That when the re- with the removal of all the trees. I think that helped to make it flood more quicker. I think, I really believe that if we had more
0: trees planted around these areas, it would help to hold back some of that water. I mean, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's the way I was thinking. Miss Mary, where, where do you live?
1: I live, I live in Orleans Parish.
0: I know, but where, what part? I'm in an uptown area. Okay, so you're not in the in, in, immediately next to a levee where you've seen them take out the trees. So um, you're just concerned in a more general sense. So, John, what's your answer to that?
1: Okay, I didn't hear the question. Oh, so she's saying, you, you know, they've
0: removed it? a lot of trees uh, from around the levees, including um, I, I noticed in the Lower Ninth Ward around Holy Cross they've removed a lot of trees. And she's concerned. She thought trees were good for helping to protect us.
1: No, uh, trees. It's a mixed bag, and I think on balance you want trees removed. I mean, it's on the one hand roots uh, help hold things together. On the other hand, uh, trees get knocked down by hurricane winds, and when they get uprooted, if the roots are in the levee, they tear up the levee and enormously weaken it. Uh, There are some indications that during Katrina uh, some of the failures were, in fact, contributed to, if not caused by, exactly that, where some trees got uprooted. So, uh, I mean, that's something that needs to happen. And, in fact, the Corps has instituted a national policy, which is uh, under review because there's been a lot of opposition to it, uh, to remove trees uh, that are anywhere near levees. I mean, there are places, if you don't face a hurricane wind, Frankly, I think it makes a lot more sense to, to have, have the shrubbery and the trees there. Yeah. Uh, in yeah. our area, we do face hurricane winds, so I think you want to get rid of them. That, that well, is a, a safety
0: Yeah, uh, as factor. far as the levees. It's, I mean,
1: you do it right.
0: Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying about levees. On the other hand, um, in terms of inland around your home, I think, generally speaking, I've heard, for the most part, that having uh, our oak trees, for example, near a house is is a protective factor. I can say that it certainly was around my house, it it really uh, was important in, in saving um, uh, our territory. Of course, we're on relatively high ground on Esplanade, uh, but, Miss Mary, I'd say well, plant trees around your house, but maybe um, they're right to take them out of the levee.
1: Well, I just was thinking that I know trees helps to hold the earth together, and that's what I was thinking, that I thought. That that would well, a lot, again, it you know, depends man. how close to the levee they are. Yeah. You know, yeah. if there's a threat that, you know, when they get blown over, if they were to get blown over, that they would tear up the levee, you want to get that tree out of there.
0: Yeah, I uh, yeah. thank you for the uh, so, information. You know, yeah, I don't know the you.
1: precise spot. But
0: thank you for for your call, Miss Mary. Okay, and John, thank you. It's such a pleasure to uh, to talk with you. You are so knowledgeable and so even-handed. And um, oh, just by the way, as I sign off with you, what's your next book coming out?
1: <laughs> It'll be a few years, unfortunately.
0: Well, what's it going to be I about? I wish
1: I wrote more quickly.
0: What will it be about? Uh, it's going
1: to be about the coast, something I swore I would never write about. <laughs> uh, and it will certainly include the lawsuit. Okay. Uh, although it will not be exclusively about the lawsuit.
0: All right. Well, uh, you should talk to Tannen, who's getting ready to do a month's work on um, uh, drawing these maps. Um, I, I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. Thank you okay. so much, John. You're uh, welcome. I look forward Take to care. Sa- say hello to your uh, charming other half. Okay. Take care. <laughs> bye bye. All right, so that's, um, you know, John Barry, that's that's uh, going to the fountain, you know, he's, he's the man for um, knowing what's going on with the, the river and a lot of environmental issues in the area, and he, he truly does his research, he digs in, and, and you can learn a lot from him, so uh, I was really pleased to have him on for my first show of the year, 2016. My next guest is somebody I literally met for the first time, I've John, known John forever, but my next guest I literally only met for the first time Yesterday at Cece's Coffee House on Esplanade Avenue, which is a wonderful meeting place for all kinds of interesting people. Um, And I give that to them despite the fact that I couldn't get them to advertise on my show. (laughs) But I I know that place and Pagoda has become real meccas for all kinds of interesting folks in our neighborhood. And um, Marlon Lee is the man, and he's a family, he's from New Orleans. He's a family member with um, Michael Francis, who was there, and we were saying hello to each other, and that's how Marlon and I met. And uh, Marlon told me that he lives in Amsterdam now, and he's a creative, basically, and you know how I feel about creatives. I work very hard to advance their um, standing in, in the economy and in our state, and um, I was fascinated to hear that he got to Amsterdam. I guess you must speak Dutch, so I'm Fascinated to hear about that, but I, 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 we want to talk to Marlon about what he his vision for his life, how he landed in Amsterdam, what he's doing. We're tracing a creative career here, folks, and, and this is so important to me because there's so many creative people in the city that I'm trying to help think bigger about what they can do and achieve, um, whether it's here in the city or elsewhere, preferably here in the city. And so that's one of the questions I'm going to throw at you as to why you left and, and whether you would come back now in view of how things have changed. But so, Marlon, who are you?
2: Well, first of all, thanks for the warm welcome. And <clears throat> another thing, I just have to make one small correction. I'm not from New Orleans. Um, I grew up in different areas of the world, but primarily St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, okay. And then I moved to Los Angeles and then later to uh, Amsterdam. So you now have
0: I've... family roots here, but you didn't actually live here. Exactly. Okay. So.
2: Just that small correction. Although I come to New Orleans regularly. Okay. I'm a big jazz jazz fan. Okay. Jazz festival fan.
0: So. Sure, sure.
2: Uh, yeah, so I, I basically moved um, to Amsterdam in November 1989, which is, makes me pretty dated, I guess. <laughs> but I moved there because I, after, while I was living in L.A., I was looking for a new adventure. And I didn't know what that adventure would bring, but I ended up in Amsterdam through... A relationship that I had. And once I arrived in Amsterdam, I discovered a totally new world because I hadn't been there before. Um, And from that arrival in Amsterdam, I realized two things. I needed to change myself as an individual because the way we operated in America is totally different than in a city like Amsterdam.
0: Well, let's start right there. How was that?
2: Well, first of all, the language. And then um, I realized I needed to learn the language, although everyone speaks perfect English in uh, in Amsterdam or in Holland as well. But if you don't understand the language, then it's hard to really get into the culture. Mm. And the culture is so diverse. I mean, there's 195 different nationalities living in Amsterdam itself. I mean, we're a city of 800,000 people Mm. um, in a very small um, area. I guess it's considered probably the third most populated place on the planet per capita. Density. Per Density, yeah. yeah. Per, per square meter. Right. So, oh. so yeah. so Culturally? Culturally, uh, Amsterdam has such a, a, a offering of culture that um, they realized as a, as a city government that they needed to somehow profit on this, although historically Amsterdam's been a very cultural place. But in the early 90s when I arrived there, the The government was trying to figure out how to bring a younger uh, group of professionals into the city.
0: So they were trying to attract people, which is uh, in part one of the things that we're in the business of doing here as well. There's definitely an interest in bringing in um, especially people involved in the new technology and the new economy. So, um, yeah, they were trying to do what we're doing. What year was that? That was in the late 90s?
2: Yeah. Actually, it started in the – yeah. I'd say around 1987, which is prior to my arrival, they were offering some kind of tax incentives to corporations, for example, like the Nike Corporation, who were looking to set up a new uh, office. So they set up their global headquarters, sorry, not the global headquarters, but the European headquarters in Holland. And because uh, you get a giant organization like Nike (laughs) setting up in in Holland, um, it attracts a lot of agency possibilities. So, for example, if you're going to have Nike Europe in Holland, they're going to need a advertising agency agency to service them. They already had an agency in the United States, so that agency then decided, why did it Kennedy? Well,
0: Nike is originally an American company, isn't yes. it? Yes. Okay, well, I just uh, wanted to clarify. Their that.
2: headquarters in Portland, Oregon.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But then when Nike <coughs> decided to open a headquarters in Europe, then, of course, um, the advertising agency for Nike... Decided to also move into Holland.
0: The whole Agency.
2: No, just so the, the world
0: the, European headquarters. Yeah, okay, exactly.
2: Right. So to service um, a global brand, you pretty much need to be in the same city mm-hmm. at that point in time because there wasn't a lot of internet and things like that. So uh, Wieden and Kennedy, which is the first advertising agency I worked at, had set up in Amsterdam as part of this early. They're movement. a New
0: York-based company,
2: aren't they? Well, they're originally their headquarters is in Portland.
0: Oh, Oregon, okay.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um they do work in New York though I, I remember them from work I did in New York at some point
2: well, didn't get Maybe
0: it. they had an account there or something that I connected with them
2: Yeah, they have offices everywhere pretty much So, okay. so one of their uh, flagship offices as it were back in the early 90s was the Amsterdam office uh-huh. And the interesting thing about setting up an office in Amsterdam is that when you're talking about attracting creative people you, you have a wonderful city that they would like to come and live in mm-hmm. And Amsterdam was historically uh, an affordable city, especially prior to the euro. So you could get a lot of young people to come into the city, and there was affordable housing, and then there was you didn't really need a car because it's a very small city. Your basic transportation is a bicycle, so you could attract young, talented people to come and work at these agencies. And, and why didn't and Kennedy? Wasn't the only agency. There were other agencies starting up as well to, to service other multinationals that were starting in Holland because of the tax break.
0: Oh, wait, let's go back. Tax break. So you Mm -hmm. said they had a tax incentive for
2: what? So if you set up a company in Holland, then let's say, for example, the employees that would come to work there could pay a a smaller amount of tax.
0: Income tax. Income tax, right. Mm
2: -hmm. So by paying a, a lower income tax rate, In fact, you could pay the employees a little bit in in a different way. You could pay them, instead of a gigantic salary, you could pay them a different netto salary or or gross salary because the tax was less. So whereas a normal Dutch person might pay 52% tax, the expatriate would pay 32% tax. Mm -hmm. So that's a gigantic difference, especially Mm -hmm. when they have to go into the housing situation, which is very complicated because in Amsterdam you have a 10-year waiting list for just a normal apartment. So if you're an expat So
0: you have high demand for housing yet you have affordable housing? That's a combination that I don't understand.
2: Yeah, well the affordable housing is 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 basically basically subsidized, subsidized housing for Dutch people. Because you have to qualify, you have to sign up and register probably when you're eighteen to, to be able to even think about getting an apartment by the time you're twenty eight. Hmm. So that whole housing thing is a whole discussion that
0: Uh, We won't go there. (laughs) Although I'm I'm fascinated with it because everything you're saying is is characteristic of New Orleans at this time, where the affordability of New Orleans has attracted a lot of creatives and tech people and entrepreneurial people, Um, but prices are going up as a result. So we have gentrification, we have higher housing prices, and, and and it's getting harder. To attract people, so I'm fascinated yeah. about what that formula is there and whether that has any relevance to what we're going through.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's kind of why I mentioned it because mm-hmm. um, it is a it, it's a very important factor for whether you're going to go live in London, which is a very creative envi- creative city, Paris, Barcelona. All these cities are, are attract creative people. However, if you're coming from Los Angeles or from New York or from New Orleans. As an expatriate to live in these cities, it's very difficult to find that affordable housing. So, so the so the government came up with a system that allowed these companies to offer tax incentives or tax breaks to their employees.
0: Interesting. And, and there's really a lot of different
2: variations on that mm-hmm. tax system.
0: Uh, in in so many ways, you know. being uh, at one time in my life more or less a history student and and in particular an American history student and in in particular an economic history student, I went to the Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations and we studied things like the Industrial Revolution and so on. Um, I am really just um, what is the right word? Uh, Kind of um, chagrined maybe to to learn constantly how much more sophisticated Europe has become, all of the European countries really, um, in dealing with complicated socio political issues than we are. And I, I I don't know how much more or less successful they are, but you know, um, I was jokingly writing a note to Babette who accompanied you about um how I'm I'm sort of leaning towards Bernie these days because he just talks about things that, you know, as they say about Donald Trump, nobody else wants to talk about, but in a much more constructive way and dealing with the realities of what we don't do for our citizens that other countries are doing for their citizens. And it's only going to get worse because with the disappearance of manufacturing jobs here and so many people dropping off the the out-of-the-work world. I, I just don't see this going in a good direction at all. But um, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well,
2: well, okay. Well, that's, that's, that's the case in point. It's just like in, in Holland or in Amsterdam, let's just look at that city specifically. They don't only help their citizens. They also help expatriates who want to come into the city and, in fact, become part of the city because that that's what makes a city interesting anyway. If you just had a city that it was only... Native individuals and we're talking really about create uh, a creative environment. So how do you attract these creative talents from Japan or from Asia in general or Africa or America? You know, how do you do that? You know, so they, they've been very clever to this very day on, on doing that, you know, so and at the same time as attracting expatriate uh, youth or professionals in the creative area, they also wanted to attract people from their own country, so other parts of home And keep people, too. And keep people. I mean,
0: that was a big issue for, for New Orleans. Um, prior to Katrina, we were losing people. It was a river of people coming out, whereas uh, right now it's more like a, a stream uh, of people. And, and uh, we're, we still have an exodus going on, and we have people coming in. We're still behind other southern states, which I just learned recently in attracting people, because we tend to think of ourselves as kind of the hot spot of the universe. Uh, there's a there's a lot of, um, you know, real um, uh, loyalty to our city in, in New Orleans. That's one of the reasons why we came back and were able to rebuild uh, a very, very devastated um, territory after the storm. But um, uh, the question is, you know, what will, what in fact do keep creatives coming in and keep them from leaving? Because as we're getting them in, we're going to lose some also because when they get here, they discover there aren't a lot of people to employ them. <coughs> I always tell people who are thinking of coming here, great, you're going to love it, but you're going to have to be your own engine because there aren't a lot of companies here to hire you. So you're going to have to be very entrepreneurial in order to make it. Otherwise, you're going to be working three jobs here just like you were back in Brooklyn or Seattle or wherever you just came from.
2: Oh, okay, that that's interesting because, first of all, New Orleans is a fantastic city, and, and all the people I know abroad acknowledge that. They don't know how to get themselves there because there are no direct flights, blah, blah, blah. So it's very complicated for someone to go mm. from Amsterdam into into New Orleans. You mm. have to take a couple of flights. Okay. Having said that, everyone wants to come to New Orleans, and not only for the music or for the jazz fest, but just for the architecture, just for everything the city offers. So how do you get these people here? And then how do you keep them? That, that's kind of the question. Exactly. Because the creative of today is also a family man or woman. So they also want to have good schools for their children. So if they're going to transplant themselves from from France or from, you know, London or from wherever, they, they want to make sure that their family unit is going to be intact. So they're not only moving here as individuals, they're moving here to look for a future for their families. And that's one thing I discovered w- while working in the creative industry is that of course, it's a it's a t-shirt, blue jean culture. But in the end of the day, these creative people end up getting married because they meet a the person of their dreams in that city. They have children, and then their concerns are different. So the cities have to also make sure the schools.
0: And and we and it, I, I'm sure you're aware that there's a, a revolution going on in our schools and in, in the city. It very much remains to be seen whether this grand experiment which was a very costly experiment for a lot of the teachers from the public school system that got fired and, um, you know, have not been able to come back to the city. I mean, just a huge loss there. But um, we're working on that. But let me go back to you personally, because I want to, I still want to milk the issue of how you developed your creative career. What is it exactly that you do now? And how did you what was your path? How did you get where you are? So what do you do?
2: Okay. I, I metamorphosize all the time. So because I'm involved Which in this... Which well,
0: creatives often do, and that's yeah. something I, I keep warning people, that you want to be broadly educated in a creative fields, yeah. not just narrowly educated. So yeah.
2: when I started off in this inter- industry, I, it was pretty much analog, meaning f- film and materials, and very little or no digital information. So by... By getting into this, what I call, uh, ever-changing environment, you know, you, you yourself have to decide, is this for me? Because you have to do a lot of studying, you have to keep up to date, and you have to be able to get along with these people who are also experiencing, what is this, what is this, um, what is this thing called Photoshop, or what is this, you know, in the 90s, you have to imagine, uh, when you were a creative person from art school, you were called an art director, and you... You know, a graphic designer and then you had a pretty specific, um, objective when you signed into a company. I,
0: I still need you to
2: tell me what you do though. Oh, what I do is, <laughs> I'm, uh, okay. Well, I was trying to get, the, well, what I do is, a, I'm, I'm a content producer. So what I do is I facilitate productions. So I work in advertising agencies and we work primarily for global brands. So I do anything from art buying, you know, to selecting photographers and organizing photo shoots or doing film shoots. Uh, whether they're documentaries or just small content for websites, for clients. Um, I produce books. I I do everything. A content producer is pretty much someone who does everything that's required within the agency.
0: And and wouldn't you say that a content producer is basically the right arm or left arm, uh, as it may be, of the actual um, digital media people who literally uh, um, make – the transfer of your content to the internet possible?
2: Yes. Because
0: I, I I have digital technology people here in this city who refuse to acknowledge the connection between the two, and 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 don't want to to view te- uh, digital technology as a part of the creative uh, world. I, and I, I don't understand it. So
2: well, it's relatively new, and then the people who were in what they call the traditional creative positions had to also learn and acquire the skills of a digital technician. So whether you're if you're an art director, you need to know a lot about websites and applications and things like that. So people like myself, just just to talk a little bit more about myself, I, I've always considered myself a toolbox. So I have a lot of different tools. So a creative person can reach into the toolbox and say, today I need Marlon to do this for me or to help me arrange this or f- find a network partner to tell me more about building apps or, you know, I need a, you know, uh, I need a photographer who can also do film because uh, the world changed so quickly, so rapidly that a photographer who doesn't do moving content, film, is pretty much becoming obsolete because the clients don't want to pay for two different professionals on one ad campaign. Hmm. So it's up to the producer, so you have still producers or, or 2D producers, you have, moving content producers and you also have producers who are a combination of both because you have to be
0: we're going to be out of time pretty soon marlon i can't believe it and i'm going to have to organize to have you call in in the future um, which i do as you saw take a call in too but um if you were uh, uh, starting out again and you were a, a teenager in high school right this minute and you were looking at going in the direction that you've gone what would you what would you be doing now? what would you advise a youngster um, or the parents of a youngster who are in my audience right now with a creative student uh, in school who's not getting exposed really to mm-hmm. this kind of thing and this is one of the things my organization dwells on creative futures you may have seen it on my website is is a um, still um, uh, evolving attempt to try to encourage more of our high school students to get the skills they need to do what you do. What would you tell a high school student right now who was Marlon Lee at 17?
2: I would tell them, and I, and I do tell people this regularly, whether they're high school students or, or older people, is that try to get yourself an internship in an advertising agency. It doesn't have to be a global one. It can be a local one. It can be you know, large or small. But try to get yourself two months or any, any amount of time possible to get in there and then go through the different uh, departments and meet the different creative professionals within that organization. And then get a taste of it. And if that tastes good to you, then go for it. You know, Because I think it's a fantastic career for young people because it's evolving. It's never going to just be stagnant.
0: When you're in the marketing business and you have to market things to other people, you have to use whatever new... Uh, approach and technology there there is available to you and um, and to have the toolkit that makes sense at that time so I, I, I really um, I, 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 I'm craving another half hour with you and so we're going to do this uh, again even though I know you're leaving to go back um, but I'm going uh, I'm sure we can uh, I, we can make an international call can't we We'll have to work on that. But um, I I really want to get more from you, and um, I know that you have a lot to offer us, and and I want to talk offline with you for a few minutes as well. No problem. Marlon, thank you so much for being available at the last minute, because as I said, I met him yesterday at CC's, but um, we're going to do more um, in the future. And uh, good luck to you, and and, uh, you all heard him. Go get an internship at an advertising agency. This is Jean Nathan. It's Crossdown Conversations, our first show of 2016. And I look forward to meeting and talking with you next week. Bye-bye.